0: Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Joining me today are Carl Havens in Gainesville, Florida. Hello, Carl. Good morning, Simon. And we have Johnny Sisson in Chicago. Hello, Johnny. Hi, everyone. Now, today we have a special guest. As we have talking from London, we have Geyser Singer. Hello, Geyser.
1: Hello, Simon. And hello, everyone else, that is Carl and Johnny. Now, last week, we
0: spoke about 135mm lenses, which led to many of you digging out your old 135s and taking some great shots. This week, we're going to be talking to Gazer and, and his rich and varied life through decades of photography. But before we do that, here's Johnny with some feedback from last week.
2: Uh, yeah, and uh, becoming a weekly feature, I'm going to say, but before that, Simon, <laughs> you did something very special last week. Why don't you
0: tell us about it? Yeah, well, a few hours after recording last week's uh, podcast, uh, I was a guest on the Sunny 16 podcast, uh, which is, and I, I think I did actually mention I was going to be going on it. Well, now I've been on it, so I know what it's about. And uh, uh, it's all about film photography. And, um, and I really, really enjoy being a guest on it. Um, I think being a guest is actually very different from hosting, uh, because normally I have to keep uh, Johnny and Carl on the straight and narrow, so I didn't have any worries on that that front. So that was good. Um, but uh, what I'll do, I'll put a, an epi- a link to the episode in the in the um, podcast notes. But I'd urge as many people as possible to listen to the other episodes and subscribe to the podcast if you if you like it, and I'm sure that you will, um, because. Film photography is just really, really interesting and it's um, it's something that... There has been something of, of a revival in film photography, um, but there's still um, downsides at the moment, as in there's some very strong rumours that Fuji are going to stop selling their Acros black-and-white film, which for certain types of shooting, especially shooting at night in low-light photography, I don't think there's anything as good as Acros. Um, so really, the more people that get involved in film and make more noise about film and being unhappy with people like Fuji for um, potentially getting rid of film, um, the better as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, the more noise people make, the more likely that uh, people like Fuji might actually continue to make uh, film that a lot of people love. Um, So anyway, I'd like to thank aid Graham and Rachel for having me on. It was a, it was a great experience.
2: Uh, Simon in other news in other Simon news this week. (laughs) <laughs> uh we we should uh, mention that Simon you had a milestone
0: you sold your first item on your website did you I did I did um my website's been up for uh I'm not sure if it's a week or 2 weeks but uh, it's been up for a week and uh, a, a sale came flooding in yesterday All right, Um, which is um, really a really (laughs) exciting experience for me. In fact, it came through last night at uh, about eleven o'clock at night. So the the sheer thrill of it kept me awake for a few hours. Um, (laughs) And uh, it's a bank holiday here in the in the UK, so I'm I'm hanging on to it. I'm I'm looking forward to putting it in the post tomorrow. So uh, thank you, thank you, my first customer. Um, (laughs) That's that's great that
2: is it is a good feeling i mean seriously it's i uh whenever we sell something on the central cameras website i'm excited i mean we sell stuff on ebay and all that but it's just different when somebody kind of seeks you out and comes and finds you it's just a it's a nice thing it is yeah that's great okay so let's um get into uh wrap up from last week uh comments and such from last week um A lot of Tango comments. Uh, You know, certainly microphone gate was a big um, topic. Uh, uh, Carl with his, um, I think, uh, was sort of a toy headset from a a VTech kids game or something that he was using the last episode. Uh, So uh, we can actually hear Simon or sorry, Carl this week, which is a nice thing. So we had we had some fun uh, feedback on that. Um Simon got some great feedback over on the podcast community uh uh Facebook page when he, he was sharing the technical process used to make this wonderful podcast here. And um uh Chris Cooling uh said, Great googly boogly, Simon. What are you doing? Hand adjusting all those levels. And Simon is now using Levelator 2, I believe. Um so this is going to cut down on Simon's work tremendously, and and God knows he'll have lots of free time to go work on his website now, which is a great thing, right? Um, over in the Photography with Classic Lenses Facebook page, uh, we had some nice feedback on, on 135 lenses, more on, I guess, like the technical side. Uh, Phil, Images by Phil, as we know him, um, he shared some uh, some links to some nice diagrams to – um, some one three five sonars, which are good to see after our com- conversation all about that. Um, <clears throat> and Brian Nagar set everyone straight. Uh, who I believe, Brian. I mean, you should tell us if this isn't true. Maybe you're also hearing it secondhand. But we're gonna we're gonna call you a native speaker. Um, and and you 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 um, helped us to understand that the right way to say the name that is spelled K O M I N E is Kolmineh. I believe that would be somewhat close to the Japanese pronunciation. I'm probably completely wrong. Uh, phonetically, it would be ko mi So, uh, Carl is right. <laughs> oh, God.
3: I, I that's right. That. That's right. I told you. Uh,
2: oh, that's painful. Um, uh, one other thing I'd li- like to mention, uh, for anyone who might have missed it, <laughs> uh, vintage camera collectors, uh, which I think we would regard as one of the probably the best groups on Facebook regarded to this whole world of what we do with, you know, old photo equipment, et cetera. They have 25,000 members over there. Um, Vlad and the men and women of the admin team pulled what I think must've been the best April Fool's stunt in the history of the internet uh, where they became vintage carpet collectors for about 24 hours. And it was a beautiful thing to see and a lot of fun. So um, thanks for making the weekend a, gr- a great thing. Uh, for me, certainly, and I think for a lot of other folks as well.
3: So there we have the wrap-up from last week. The, the comment that I really liked, and we got it from I don't recall who, was that um, they really appreciated the podcast because we've introduced them to new ways of looking at lenses that they've used in the past. Yeah. And I think it was in reference to using a 135 for landscape photography. But that was great because that's kind of what we're shooting for in doing these
0: yeah, that that was a revelation for me as well because, um, as as we talked about, um, I I use one three five for landscape, but part of me was thinking I, I'm, it's it's not really the right lens for landscape. Yet yeah, I use it quite often, and uh, having Johnny um, explain that uh, it was the the German uh, hikers landscape lens, it makes me feel a whole lot better about it.
2: Yeah, it's great to see some of the sample photos we had um, in the group as
0: well. There were there were quite a few follow up photos on our, you know, based on that discussion. So, yeah. I've also got to say that uh, just talking about the vintage camera collectors becoming vintage carpet uh, collectors was was it was just brilliant. Um, some of the, uh, the the comments were parodying, um normal comments on there like I've I've just bought this rug. <laughs> Do you think it's yeah. it's worth anything or uh, uh, yeah, just 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 little little things like that? And it, it was really good. But there was it was also interesting about the number of people that really couldn't couldn't take it um, yeah. because it is a very a serious group at times a little bit too serious and uh, and i think some of those people that were on the edge of being too serious a, a number of people yeah. quit the group as a result yeah. Of that. yeah yeah i think at one point mike ekman posted a, a number it
2: was in the hundreds <laughs> which i i mean i i mean what a, if you're going to call some members that probably have no sense of humor and and need to be good sports and everything what a great way to do it i thought it was fantastic and and now they've completely reverted back to vintage camera collectors with absolutely no carpet anything allowed it's just i like i'm gonna you know i think let's let's hand it to vlad uh having grown up in a soviet the soviet times for (laughs) putting the iron fist down and just say no we're back to vintage camera collectors that's the way it is enjoy it it's great I think it, it was, was I mean, it was it was just a fantastic thing.
3: It was great. And I, I think the prize goes to the guy who posted the black and white of Ansel Adams with his Hoover vacuum cleaner.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, what a great thing. And I gotta say, Simon, I really did enjoy listening to the Sunny 16 podcast with you with you on. Um I I'm definitely looking forward to listening to, to more of those. It was a really good conversation. Um oh, so many English accents. I don't even know if you were the
0: um the most posh sounding accent on that group. It was
3: no, no, amazing. I
2: was, I was
0: the least posh sounding <laughs> person on that group. Just, just for your reference, there. <laughs> yeah. right. time. So anyway, let's uh, let's move on to um, the rest of the podcast, which is about Gazer Singer and his uh, his life in photography. Um, I, I think my my first question to you, Gazer, uh, will be: perhaps you might want to tell us about your first photographic experience and when when that was
1: right okay well i think it might be useful if i were to give a little background just prior to uh the photographic experience although for the time i think it came reasonably early in my life But my life started in the last few months of the Second World War, 1944. When I say last few months, at least on the territory where I happened to come into this world, which was the capital of Hungary, Budapest. And um, it was a difficult time for my family there. Quite a number of them, including my own father, perished in the Holocaust and also due to the city virtually being destroyed, and uh, food not available, and me not being well, my mother decided that we better, you know, move somewhere else. But without a plan and without actually means of traveling that would have been acceptable at the time, uh, a strange little story came about which some of you may well have read on my page on facebook as told <coughs> by my grandson marlon anyway moving on from there at eight months of age i ended up in transylvania a strange little geographical place where number of different nations over the centuries have changed hands Uh, More lately, the Habsburgs, the Romanians. And after the Second World War, finally, it has become part of the Romania as we know it today, even though it does have also a large ethnically Hungarian sort of component there. So I ended up there, and then um, moving on to when I was aged four, Simon was interested in the little story that I also told as to how I managed to cross the border between two nations without having any papers whatsoever and literally walking across no man's land. So the reason that I think this background is relevant is because I think for people who are younger than me and who have spent almost all their lives in what we euphemistically call the West, have got very little perception as to what life was really like. Behind the Iron Curtains, where where I spent 17 years, well, no, 19, in fact. And um, it was difficult only because of political scenarios that were being played out at the time that was a dictatorship that was heavily involved in in brainwashing the youngsters. Um, Not so long ago, and this has got still nothing to do with photography, I went to see a film called The Death of Stalin. I don't know if you even heard about it, and I enjoyed it tremendously, but I also realized that. Most people wouldn't get it. It was a <laughs> sarcastic and very, very funny feel. And to me, it made sense. And, of course, it reminded me of something that I'm in no way ashamed. And that is that in 1953, when I was nine years old, was I? Yes. Um, and Stalin died. I actually cried because they made us believe that he was, you know, our Uncle Joe. Mm. Well, so from the age of nine, let's move on a little bit, maybe a couple of years where I can start talking about photography. And I do not have a very precise time of of saying that this is when it started. I mean, what I do remember is that my father, that is my adoptive father, um, had a Zorky. I still have that camera. And once a year, he used to go on vacation, often to uh, the Black Sea, and I remember him coming back, and I don't recall the pictures he took, but what I do remember, because I used to ramage through his things occasionally when he wasn't around, that I started unscrewing the lens and I was mesmerized that I could find grains of sand in there. (laughs) Quite interesting, given the fact that he never had another lens. So how the sand got into the thread, I've got no idea. But let us move on, and we come to my very first camera. Again, I don't remember, probably a birthday gift to me. It was a Lubitel two, which... I think people are aware of. It, it was a very cheap, made of bakelite or bakelite um, plastic, and and a twin lens reflex, and and very little else can be said about it. And yet, I do have one very interesting um, recollection of this fact: that in 1961 there was. And solar eclipse, 15th of February, I looked it up, and in my total ignorance and temerity, I decided to take pictures of this eclipse using a Lubitel 2. I do remember that somehow or another I worked it out that I should use a very slow film and then I should stick on some red filters, but I have managed to get a sequence of, I can't remember now, maybe 20 shots taken at regular intervals. And the place that I have taken the pictures from wasn't the total eclipse, but it was almost. And you can actually see the process of how um, the sun became smaller and smaller and then reached the maximum that it was possible at that point and trailing off the other way. And, and I'm sort of proud of that. So from there on, I did develop my own personal interest in, in taking pictures. And I do have a couple of little prints that are from perhaps when I was 15, 16. But looking back, you
3: know, you
1: know I'm not ashamed of it. But then, you know, I had to contend with having to finish high school. Then I intended to go to university. And please don't laugh. I um, intended to go to drama school. because in the last few years when I was still at high school. I actually had proper jobs in the local theater. But obviously... um, I didn't succeed in getting into the drama school, and for very good reasons. A, I um, didn't have talent, and B, I had to develop high temperature just the day before the exams. But anyway, uh, shortly after that, after I matriculated, finished high school, uh, my parents decided that we will be repatriating, a strange word perhaps, uh, to Hungary. Um, that is because although my adoptive father was born in Transylvania, uh, my mother and I have maintained our Hungarian citizenships throughout the 17 years or that so that, that we spent there. So just before we left, but you could almost call it my gap year, I decided that in as much as I didn't have a possibility of carrying on with drama, I I thought of photography as being something that I wanted to take more seriously. So in in that time of perhaps less than a year, I spent a little bit of time working in a local photographic studio where I have learned the, the basics of developing films and making enlargements, and a little bit of a lighting in a studio. And also, I have worked for a few months in a printing establishment, and particularly in the area of dealing with films that were necessary in order to uh, create litho plates from them. But I'll come back to the printing a little bit later on. So, by then I decided the Lubitel isn't really good enough for me, and I was pressing my parents to try and, and obtain a better camera. And <laughs> this is a, another little anecdote from Geza's life. I did get my first proper camera, an exact RX. and that was achieved by my mother going to visit relations in hungary and coming back wrapped in 5 meters of nylon material What was happening? Well, between the the little place where I grew up was really a border town and people were regularly going back and forth between Hungary and Romania because there were certain goods that were cheaper in one place and they could be sold at a profit on the other country and vice versa. So the nylon material just came into being as it were particularly behind the Iron Curtains, and it was a lot cheaper in Hungary than in Romania. So from the profit that my mother made on that, she actually managed to buy me an x So when I finally, in 1961, left Romania for good and ended up in um, Hungary, back in Budapest, um, I did have a proper camera. What I didn't have was a job, or a prospect of where am I going from there. Given the fact that although I had some relations there, uh, I didn't have friends. I didn't go to school there. In fact, I didn't go to Hungarian education establishment because all my, or most of my uh, studies were done in Romanian. Most of my friends uh, were, (coughs) sorry, Romanians. Anyway, so there again, um, I have um, spent a lot of time without really achieving a great deal. Um, But soon afterwards, in uh, the spring of 1963, my mother finally managed to obtain a passport to visit her older brother who was living in London. And I don't know how she managed it, because she spent about three months here. And end of it, when she came back to Budapest, she told me that she has agreed with her brother, my uncle Datis, that he is willing to make it possible for me to come to London and to study English or, or do something in with regards to my future there. And, That's how, in November 1963, I arrived into what was still then a pretty foggy Albion. And yes, I had to start learning English because, believe it or not, when I arrived, I spoke nothing, absolutely nothing. In school, I have learned French, and I was taught Russian, which um, wasn't very successful in terms of them teaching or me learning it. And uh, it took me a few months before I, I could get a modicum of English to be able to understand or make myself understood. But come 1964, I have enrolled in a technical college for a diploma in photography, and this was the Ealing Technical College, they were running a 3 year course in photography and i really got no idea how nowadays um the curriculum of of such establishments is um run but certainly in my time it was very much still in the world of um, large format sheet film photography using fairly awkward cameras and the processes were really manual in, in almost every sense. There was a lot of theory, both in terms of uh, optics, uh, chemistry, and various other things. And the whole thing was approached from the point of view of a commercial photographer, somebody who might be working either for a large Enterprise or uh, working alongside others in a studio, or eventually perhaps having their own studio. So the spectrum of the skills that we had to learn there was probably as wide as it was possible in in the 1960s. I mean, eventually, I can't remember now if this was in the first year, maybe a bit later on, but when we came to do sort of the processing of of color material, I mean, it would easily take about two hours to actually go through the process of producing uh, tests. I don't know if you've come across uh, enlargers where the color correction was done by way of gelatin filters that you had to put between the light source and the lens of the larger. And then the process of actually going through the development, through the wash, through the stabilizers, through the wash, to the fix, to the wash, to the drying, before you could actually see out in the proper lighting if your exposure and if your color correction was correct or not. So it was on the one hand quite tedious and time consuming. On the other hand, when one achieved the results that one was aiming for was satisfactory. Now, after I finished my first year, again, back to a little bit of personal note, um, my visa, which I was granted when I came to this country, was purely for studying. But I also needed a visa from the Hungarian authorities as well. And that kept expiring and I kept asking the embassy here to renew it and so forth and eventually they said look we can't renew it and um, you better go back to Hungary and ask for a fresh one. Mm -hmm. So um, contrary to the advice of my family I decided to yeah okay well this is what I've got to do this is what I shall do and I went back I, I will um, make a little detour because um, I went it so happens that I was in Monte Carlo at the time and I went from there back to Hungary via train and I decided to spend a day in Venice and the reason I mentioned this because I have taken quite a number of pictures in Venice which I eventually managed to sell back in Hungary so that, that was a fruitful little stopover for me. So back in Hungary, I decided, okay, fine, here it is. Now I shall apply to the authorities for another exit visa, and uh, they didn't want to know about it. Again, perhaps I ought to mention that at that time, for any body of my age and being of uh, being masculine rather than the other sex, um, the thought of being granted permission to go abroad, uh, particularly to the West, was unheard of because everybody was required to do military service. Now, luckily, on um, health grounds, I was not required to do that, but nonetheless, they refused to let me come back. So, cut a long story short, I spent 18 months struggling to get back. And during those 18 months, I spent almost the whole year working in a photography establishment where I was doing nothing but taking pictures of babies and toddlers. Um, I could think of uh, more interesting things to do, but I I have learned a lot in terms of uh, dealing with models, quote unquote, of, uh, you know, processing the whole concept. Uh, It wasn't too bad. I used to go there sort of um, just after midday, process all my films. And then I was handled, um, I don't know, maybe six envelopes with different addresses. in different parts of the city where I would go with my um, camera and with one of those big portable flash units that you may have seen where you, you carried the battery that was, um, you know, the size of a hall door bag. But it, it was something that I did. So at the end of the, that, of that period, I came back to London and I managed to get back into the second year of my three-year course, and then I carried on with that. And then in the third year, and by now we are in 1968, um, I have obtained my diploma. My diploma work in it's an interesting project which is obviously tied to um, photography in one sense, on the other hand, not, not the way we know it. And that Particular project was on holography. A couple of years earlier, I picked up a copy of the Scientific American, and that was the first time I have heard of holography. Um, Interestingly enough, um, holography was invented by a Hungarian, Professor Danis, as the English would pronounce his name, who eventually got a Nobel Prize for his invention. What is perhaps less appreciated is the fact that he invented holography in the 1930s, but he couldn't really make it um, work properly till the invention of the lasers, which only happened, I think, in the late fifties or early sixties. And In the 1968 period that I was telling you about, I, helped by one of my colleagues, had achieved um, to obtain a hologram which I believe, and I have not been contradicted hitherto, the first one done by an amateur, meaning outside the Imperial College of London and and the other um, scientific universities that may have been looking at this. And compared to where all this um, is today, it is hilarious to think of it that a one watt laser that I was working at the time was one meter long. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen the size of a laser diode inside the CD player. Um, well, they were minute compared to the one I was working on. And the film that I have been using was something that they used in astronomy, which, if I remember correctly, had an ASA of 3,200, meaning extremely fast for its day. Mm -hmm. I mean, remember, in those days we were using Kodachrome, which was 25 ASA, and we were using high-speed Ektachrome, right? high-speed ectochrome, 160 ASA. So, compared to that, this astronomy film was um, really very fast indeed. So, how long was my exposure? Something like an hour. And although everything was uh, set up on paving stones and stabilized in every possible way, Every time a big lorry passed on kind of the street nearby, um, I had to start again because that would have spoiled the results. But anyway, I managed it and as a result I, I got my diploma. So there I was. I had a diploma and everything that that I wanted to do was photography. I at it, I dreamt it. I did everything for it. I mean, when I first arrived in this country, I was still smoking cigarettes. But when I realized that a pack of cigarettes cost more or less the same as a roll of film, I gave up smoking cigarettes. Uh, But there was a little problem again to do with my status in this country Uh, because now that my... Proper studies have finished. The Home Office and this country decided that I have outstayed my welcome, and they unmistakably told me to get the hell out. Now, given what happened to me on that enforced day in Hungary earlier, uh, the last thing I wanted to do was to go back, even though this meant that I was separated from my parents, which which obviously was a serious downside. But nonetheless, um, the writing was on the wall. I had to leave. And then somehow or another, my uncle, who was also a lawyer in better days before the war, um, managed to find a contact to... um, somebody connected to the United Nations um, Committee for Refugees or some such thing. And this person has seen my uncle and suggested that perhaps the one way that um, I could resolve the problem was that instead of uh, going to be an employee somewhere, I should become an employer. I know this is not an... Option that uh, most people have, but luckily for me, I did have that option because my family was running a small um, secretarial and printing company. So literally, from one day to another, I have become a director of the company. And as a result, the authorities allowed me to stay. And in a few years after that, I have obtained um British citizenship and and this problem has gone away but this also meant that it was the end of my possible career as a photographer which uh, I wasn't pleased about but nonetheless it, it was the reality of what I had to face and I did I mean we did try to push among the services of the company, the fact that I could take uh, photographic assignments. but frankly, other than one or two odd things, nothing happened and then this went by the wayside. So I got more involved with the technical side of things and eventually um, we started doing things in uh, phototype settings. so again, a little bit of uh, optics and and processing of, exposed um, light sensitive material came to be but after a while um that business has become rather difficult because um kind of our clients have become our competitors because an awful lot of the things that our company used to do for them uh, people started doing in-house so i decided that perhaps it's Time to do something else. And then in the late 80s, I left the company and I went in with a friend into trying to do something of our own, a little adventure that turned out to be a total disaster. But I mentioned it because, yet again, it does have a little relationship with photography. And I should think none of you heard about something called the magic mirror. But this was an interesting invention by a French guy, whereby he created a contraption that would have allowed retailers to usher uh, potential buyers of clothing into a little room. And instead of them having to take their clothes off and try a succession of garments, they could just stand in front of a mirror and see what a number, any number of garments, might look upon them. I mean, it was a crude way. This is pre-digital era, where today this this could be achieved much more effectively. But in those days, it was a combination of taking a carousel-type uh, projector loaded with slides and the slides contained the image of the garments that were shot in a studio but with the head of the model obscured and using a flexible arrangement of mirrors it was possible at the time of projecting this is to combine the reflection of the person trying on the garment to be visible only as far as the head was concerned, and adjusting the height and the widths to suit the person looking into the mirror. And it created the kind of illusion of somebody going through and, and and changing garments. But in fact, the retailers were not interested, and after a while, um this whole thing has collapsed and we lost a lot of money and I had to try and do something else and that's something else uh, turned out to be uh, in IT. I took a postgraduate course in in computers and shortly afterwards I managed to find employment with a large company in here that was running something like two dozen different ports. No, no, we're not talking about computer ports, we're talking about C ports. So I ended up um, in a company that was running mainframe computers, but in about two years or three, that got scaled down to PCs. And curiously enough, out of um, staff of 30-odd people, Only seven were retained, and I was one of them because all the people who had computer science degrees and have spent decades dealing with mainframes didn't have anything by way of knowing how to deal with PCs whilst I did. So where is this to do with with photography? Uh, Well, not that much. Because during this time, I have been working fairly hard, fairly long hours, and photography was really limited to, what shall I call it, travel photography, family happy snaps. Not that I have not um, taken those um, seriously, but simply the amount of time and energy that I could devote to it was um, limited. But... I visited all these ports and I would have had the opportunity of of taking pictures up and down the country. And it rarely happened because often it was, you know, long drive to a given port up and down the aisles and and back again. So as I say, photography was not, not, not a great deal. But then come 2000 and when was it 2014? No, I have to remind myself. uh, 2004, in fact, when suddenly um, there was yet yet another reorganization in, in this company, and they have offered me a redundancy on terms that I simply couldn't refuse. So thereafter, I um, just carried on doing a little bit of IT consultancy, which I still do, very rarely, but I still do. And suddenly I had time. And I have taken up photography, if you like, uh, with a vengeance. In 2007, I joined Flickr. And um, I think it was 2010 that I have joined uh facebook now flickr for those who have not been part of it on those what i call the early days um, perhaps can't really understand that it, it was a nice place to be it was nice because apart from being a platform that was dedicated solely to photography Nonetheless, it has given the opportunity for people to interact by way of the comments and other things. And I have to say that I was lucky enough to develop perhaps a dozen friendships, um, some of whom have turned from virtual to real, and, and I met some very nice people as a result. Now, Facebook... We, we know all its issues in terms of not being ideal for photography, but perhaps being a lot stronger in terms of the so-called social media interaction. Some of it uh, being, of course, negative in terms of what one reads about, although personally I have not um, experienced such um, negative things myself. Now, that that would kind of be a, a little sort of resume of, of how I got to where I am. Perhaps I might talk, if you want me to, a little bit about what sort of kit I have been working with throughout this time.
0: Absolutely, please do.
1: Okay, so um, the Lubiter was mentioned, the exact RX. So... After acquiring it with just a 50mm Tessar lens, I have, and really, I can't remember it. I mean, we were be talking about 50 years ago as to how and the exact things, but I'm pretty sure that I have acquired a Trio plan, very nice lens, and also very unusual at the time, a 20mm flactagon for extreme wide angle. And I also had a telephoto lens, which I know it was a 200mm, but um, we, we had a quick think about it with Simon the other day, and I seem to think it may have been a solid go, but if it wasn't, it was something of that ilk. And also, um, at the same time with this, I uh, acquired a practice Six. This was during my time when I was back in Hungary. And with that, throughout a number of years, I have gathered together, apart from the biometal 80 mil, that was it's a very nice standard lens. I also had a biometal 120 mil, a 65 mil, is it 65 mil? I think so, Flactagon, and a Sonar 180 2.8, which is a monster of a lens, and and don't you ever point it towards a light source, but otherwise a beauty. And I had a Telamagor 300, which um, in those days I didn't mind carrying around. Today, of course, I wouldn't dream of it. And I will also make a little detour um, to mention the fact that for whatever reason, I never ever got on with rangefinder cameras. And that's why instead of um, having carried on with the Zorki or or any such cameras, I I very soon found that... uh, a reflex camera was was much more to my liking, and I guess it's to do with with the nature of of the type of things that that I like taking pictures of. And and those of you who have perhaps followed me, they would know that on the one hand, I I don't have a very narrow category of the things that I take pictures of. Nonetheless, I repeat the type of things which are the street shots or close-ups, or, or, of course, at the time I didn't know about the terminology of bokeh, and again, we can talk about how that's meant to be pronounced, but I do know that when I look back upon those early pictures, I very much had the approach of having things in the foreground that were sharply in focus, and things in the background that were Nicely diffused, depending on the lens that I was using. Another camera through the um, last college years that I had, which which certainly worth a mention, is uh, I had the Linhoff Technica, which is an absolutely superb piece of engineering. It was um, 6 by 9 And uh, I still have just a few of the transparencies that I shot with it. And I mean, you know, large format. Well, this is really medium format compared to the five by fours that I was using in the college. But um, really, we we can never, never reach that kind of uh, smooth, tonal representation at the moment with digital and, and certainly not with the 35 mil analog formats but eventually um, my practice six stopped working properly and um, somehow i can't remember now i i wanted something a little bit better than the exacta so i ended up with the pentax just just with the takumar and i didn't have it for long because somehow, I think around 69, I got my first Nikon. It was a Nikon F1, and then literally till the digital age, I went through a number of Nikon bodies, F3, Nikomat, Then later on, an 801, which kind of perhaps by purists was not regarded as a proper Nikon because it was um, kind of taking away a lot of the need for skills. And even today, I have an analog F80, which is a very nice camera. In terms of lenses with the Nikons, I had... Well, they may not be a holy Trinity, but certainly they were the lenses that were best regarded at the time in terms of um, Nikon, meaning affordable for people like myself. And they would have been the 24 mil, the 50, the 51.8. But I also had a 55, 3.5 macro, a 105 and a 200mm f4. And, well, I enjoyed using them. And unfortunately, some uh, of the bodies and lenses went by way of our flat being ransacked once and have to put up with the fact that I have lost some of these really nice lenses and I had to kind of start again with a few ones. But that almost coincided with with the start of of a digital era. So my first proper digital camera was a Minolta Dimage or Dimage A1. And that was eventually um, followed by a series of small compacts, but digital ones, because I was still using the analogs whenever I went traveling. I had a Ricoh GX100, followed by a 200, and Olympus, Olympus rather, XZ1, which is the first time when I have learned about the notion of spectral highlights. I absolutely hated what that camera did with highlights because they were literally empty. There were no pixels in there, nothing at all. No matter how much one tried to underexpose, if you really picked up a proper highlight, that they were gone. Even to the extent that there was a website, if I remember rightly, somewhere based in America where some uh, university students created some Um, software that you could upload your uh, shot from these cameras and they would create a kind of pseudo-fill for these empty highlights. Anyway, shortly after that, I got rid of it and I got a Fujifilm X10. And then I started having a series of Nikons, Nikon D80, Nikon D300. Eventually, I realized that all along I wanted a full-frame one, so I got a D700, and perhaps what was it now? Two years ago, maybe two and a half, a 750, D750. And then the Olympus OM series came around, and I started with the EM5. And eventually when the EM1 Series 1 came out, I uh, went for that one. And I have quite a nice collection of uh, lenses to go. Uh, I think I've got the best, apart from the 300 mil, the best of the Suiko lenses that go with the Olympus.
2: Uh,
1: For Nikon, I tend to mostly use um, third party lenses, um, notably Tamron, so I'm quite happy with my walkabout 28 to um, 75 mil 2.8 Tamron. I've got the Tamron 90 mil macro, and uh, I, I'm not really a collector. unlike like some of you chaps, or certainly people on on in our groups. I have acquired, so yes, I'm not immune to gas. I have acquired a fair number of lenses, but but not, certainly I don't have multiple examples of the same lens, and I certainly um, don't have... um, the ability of affording myself, you know, perfect examples like you, Carl, go for, and I, I admire that. But I just really go for uh, the cheap option that, that still delivers reasonable quality. And uh, amongst, on the shelf, I still have a few um, sort of funnies, like a rollet cord from before the war that was gifted to me, an Olympus XA. And, uh, such going back to this range finder business. I mean, I, I, still have, and I did try to use the Kiev as well, but mechanically they always let me down. And I do have the one lens that Carl and I have, um, exchanged views about, which is the Snapshot Scopar that I know, Carl, you got rid of. And I'm, I'm in two minds about it. I can see its benefits. but. I, I'm only using the Zorki now simply because it's the only full frame that, that I can use it with. But um, I don't know. It, it's something that I don't insist on having forever. But going back to rangefinders, why is it I wondered that I have totally failed to successfully use the Rolly 35? that so many people uh, eulogize about it, I can't think of any other word of using it. I could never get it properly focused. And I also acquired a lovely little camera a few years back, a Nikon 35Ti, which is, again, a rangefinder with a slightly wide lens, superb, superb camera, almost no control over the exposures and also i still have a rolly not this little miniature one but the next size up which is so automated that it gives me absolutely no pleasure to use but they're sitting on the shelf and and they are happy with that so um I have been going on for quite a while. I'm I lost track of the time, but um, any questions? Perhaps.
0: Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Um, it's like where do you start, really? Um, and um, actually, there was there was one story from quite uh, quite early on. So I'm going to take you back probably about. 50 to 60 years, if I may. Um, and I'm, I'm particularly intrigued about that photograph that you took of the solar equi- eclipse with your um, with your Lubatel. Um, you, you'd mentioned that you'd, you'd worked out uh, you needed a, a, a pretty fast film or whatever that might be, no, no, it's slow, 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 slow film. Sorry, slow film. <laughs> um, but how did, how did you work out your, your actual shutter speed from that? Because I
1: didn't have to. I didn't have to work out anything. It it was a shot in the dark. I simply put the camera on the smallest aperture and the fastest speed, the slowest uh, kind of roll of films that I could find, and I stuck a red filter on it. And I was amazed. <laughs> how well, I mean, um, if you're interested, there, there is a. Uh, a post that I put on, uh, I don't know, I may have done it on the Facebook as well, but that's easy uh, not to, to find, whilst on the um, Flickr site, all you put in uh, against my name is, is Eclipse, and it will come up. And in fact, I think one of them I, I put upside down, but thats it, it will give you an inkling. I mean, you have to also visualize that... Um, I have got these um, tiny prints that almost are the size of a um, 35 mil frame, meaning 35 by 24 mil, And on there, these represent something like a circle of about, uh, I don't know, five millimeters. But I think on my original 6x6 six six nag, they were literally just kind of two millimeters across. You know, nowadays we throw um, 300 mil lenses with, um, you know, extenders and whatnot, and then and, and we get marvelous um shots of the moon but that, that was just something that I thought I'm gonna do and I approached it systematically which which I'm pleased about and therefore I, I have got an acceptable sequence of what an eclipse looks like. Another, another
0: thing about going back to those days and, and uh, uh, before you came to, to London um, because when you when you did come to London, uh, you 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 arrived a smoker, and um, and the cost of photography uh, cured your uh, your addiction to smoking. Um, but that would indicate to me that uh, shooting in Eastern Europe, uh, purchasing film and shooting film, I, I'm making the assumption was was a lot cheaper over there. Is that is that right?
1: well it, it certainly don't recall that it was difficult for me or that I had to forego my cigarettes but <laughs> or smoking a little um side aside I should say is that I have not altogether given up smoking um after the cigarettes, I have moved on to pipes, and until uh, about five or six years ago, I was a pipe smoker, but literally just you know, one, at the most, two fields a day. So I wasn't really a heavy smoker. And that whole thing started again in the theatre when sort of we went into our rehearsal rooms. It was very difficult to see from one side of the room to the other. It was so thick of smoke, so I might as well smoke myself, I thought. But yes, um, also perhaps something I might have mentioned is um, going back to my Ealing days. I was very lucky that I have managed to um, have good relationships with my tutors. And and there were some interesting people amongst them. Um, One was a lady, originally from East Germany, who went in the 1950s to Japan to teach them how to do giant enlargements. I mean, you know, think about the Japanese and their attitude to women and all the rest of it, and to foreigners. Um, It was interesting, but I, thanks to her, after I got my diploma and I left the college, for several years I was able to go back because she was having evening classes So I'm afraid to say that quite a number of my 20 by 16 prints that still take up quite a bit of shelf space in this flat um, have been at the expense of the English taxpayer. Because certainly today, I don't know if I could afford to do 20 by 16 color prints, like, um, I don't know, two or three a week which I did in those days, but then education was thought of rather differently because there were no university fees in this country. Um, People who went to university were given grants and certainly all the materials that were needed for uh, achieving what you wanted were provided. That is no longer the case, alas.
3: So Giza, um, this is Carl. Um, I, re- I really enjoy the photos that you post and, and the, the compilations of photos that you post and you have a really good eye and when I, when I look at your compilations of four or five or six pictures, I can almost picture you walking around London and, and, and picking out interesting things to shoot. You have a really good eye and, and you can capture nice shots of just small simple things but, um, and it's interesting. Um, you posted a Picture on March 21st, and it's a beautiful black and white, looking down a street with some um, industrial things in the background, and it's a little atypical. and And um, I, it was interesting where you were talking about rangefinders. That's probably the kind of shot that I would take with one of my rangefinder film cameras, and uh, shooting at f/8, not really need to worry about focusing too much, and. Um, I don't know. So I can I can envision if I ever went to London, I would probably walk around, and almost all of my photos would look like that. They would be <laughs> vast expanses of of uh, cityscape kind of kind of things. But you live there, so that's probably the difference.
1: Yeah, the expanse is something that you know I I so miss because in fact unless you go to the river, where you do have the opportunity of having an expanse. It is very difficult, although nothing like New York or, or any other major metropolis in the world, London is not quite as highly built up. But nonetheless, it is very, very difficult to, to do something that one might loosely call a landscape, a cityscape, because you are forever hemmed into to something that, that is a lot narrower. So, as a result, um, you know, I've, I find difficult to, to find new things there. But look, um, without any false modesty, if from the word go in my involvement with photography to this minute, I think perhaps the only thing that, that I have, it's a tiny bit of plus, uh, as against an average photographer, is that I see things. Uh, I don't think I I bring any technique that is better than anybody else or or anything else. It's a question of perhaps interpreting what other people walk by without noticing and, and recording it in a way that perhaps tells the story slightly differently. But you see, going back to the rangefinder thing, why? do I have difficulty with range finders? And I think the result is very much into this business that the rangefinder is perfectly fine if you have the vistas and the landscapes. But the moment you try to do the type of pictures that I feel that, that are my kind of pictures, then I go in close. And that moment, because I still am of the old school who's at least attempting to... Frame up and have a picture, which, as we would call it today, straight out of the camera, and the parallax for me just creates something that I, I find difficult. You know, I, I can't compose my pictures with enough room around it to allow for the parallax. The moment you you get close to it, and I think that's one of the main reasons that I, I don't get on with because I don't get what I see essentially
2: yeah gaze i can i can really relate to that it's interesting how um i mean i've i know i've said it before i i really don't i i I haven't gotten on with rangefinder cameras for most of the time i've been doing photography and i think it's very much for the same reason because when i'm shooting an slr i tend to pick out details um and to me, SLRs are great at that because the framing is precise, and you, you just don't get that with the rangefinder. And I've only kind of relatively recently um, started shooting rangefinders um, and, and shooting them wide like that. I think what got me into it was shooting you know, ultra-wide lenses, which I think work, work out really well for Vistas on, on rangefinder cameras rather than SLRs, but um, I've always had the same challenge with them. So I, I, can, I can very much relate to that personally. Um, I you know, I just find the precision of being able to, to frame with an SLR and the viewfinder is a big plus.
1: <laughs> For no reason at all, Johnny, but the, the way the mind works, well, my mind works, suddenly I remembered one of the uh, worst um, mishaps that I had in photography. We are back in the 60s now, uh, Vietnam War, we, I, At the time, I lived on Park Lane, which was literally within two minutes of the American embassy here in London, well, the one that's moving. <laughs> and on Park Lane, one could actually hear the demonstrators shouting, you know, milling around and, and going towards the embassy. So I was at home at the time and I decided, well, this is perfect opportunity that I'm going to take some pictures. And I grabbed my camera and I rushed down. And um, I can't remember now if this was, I, this may still have been the Varex, I think. And uh, I got right in the middle of it. And, and it was if you like, awful, because there is a very nice garden there and that was overrun and the police came with horses and then there were, you know, the demonstrators tried to stub out their cigarettes on the hall. I mean, it it was as awful as a demonstration could get in our then very polite and civilized sort of London. And I was shooting, and I was shooting, and I was shooting and shooting. And I kept looking, have I still got film? Have I still got film? And when I realized that my counter went well past 40, suddenly my heartbeat stopped. Yeah, I came out with that the film loaded. Ah. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. no, all that of roses as far as photography is concerned. well it's, you know,
3: wow. it, it's interesting about range finders and I, I i think it reflects um a very short history with photography on my part and and starting out serious shooting of photos within with an em5 not very many years ago and then an em1 and um my my early photos if i look back all are relatively close bokeh shots. And um, and then I've, I got into film photography only about two years ago. And when I shoot film photography, just going out and shooting the film and, and, and using the camera is, is the fun part for me. And I'm not even as concerned about how the photos are going to turn out. I'm just having fun. And, um, and I think because of that, I've migrated away from uh well i have a canon fa and i just i find it relatively boring to use so i bought an an old canon 7 rangefinder and it's fun i just i love it um I like to use a light meter and adjust everything manually. The rangefinder is good, but I'm shooting relatively wide shots of groups of people, and I just bought a Canon P because I want something a little bit smaller in my hands, and it's going to be the same thing. And you know, the photos aren't wonderful photos like I could get if I took my Fuji out and did the same thing, or my can or my Sony. Um, so it's a different, a different background experience maybe. It's almost, it's almost like. I get away from the office and I don't have to think about all the crap in the office. And I just think about how to adjust and use the camera for an hour. And, um, so that's kind of my thing. I like range binders right now. Look,
1: um, you must have seen my comments, uh, because I know that at least, um, Simon and, and Carl, we've you, been interacting for quite a while. Uh, and there is this business about, you know, the best, camera best lens whatever and and you know my answer to that don't you um it's the one that is in your pocket or in your hand wherever that that is the best one and and, um nowadays um i mean simon now has become a professional lens um purveyor is that a good word simon
0: (laughs) I'm glad I'm glad you ended ended with um, Vaya there because I was wondering where you were going with with purr <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: all right so and and I have more or less um stopped um Kind of my quest for getting yet another, yet another, yet another lens. So, you know, my last acquisition as far as photography is concerned is my iPhone 8. And simply because I somehow cottoned onto this business that with Lightroom um, Mobile, it is now possible to use that as a raw camera in your iPhone. And the difference is absolutely massive. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm really mad at the fact that the only way I can have this is having to pay a monthly subscription, which for anybody who's not actually making any money out of photography is, is an expense. It's no- a <laughs> uh, On the other hand, it, it does give me tools and and easy um, access that, that simply was not available before. Because, you know, I go out, as I did two days ago, or was it yesterday? No, it was yesterday. And I simply went around the block, I took a few pictures, and by the time I came home, I could edit them, if I so chose, on Lightroom on my iMac, because... You know, it, it just went up into the cloud and from there it was available on my desktop, which which I think is great. Um actually again something going back in history and how I have changed. And and I don't think that's a bad thing because I'm hoping that, that of the many things that I can be called, I can't or shouldn't be called being dogmatic. But I was—I remember that in the early days of Flickr, I made some somewhat strong statements about editing, about post-processing. I, I, I was a little bit still in, in the old school of saying that, if you got it you got it and if you ain't got it it ain't gonna be there. <laughs> and I have changed. I have changed and I think it's to do with the fact that whilst I am still quite useless as far as Photoshop is concerned, I just haven't got the manual dexterity to use it properly. But with Lightroom, I feel that I I can do as much as Lightroom lets me do. And and I use it with a vengeance. I, I now find that pictures that perhaps that might not be to use to be parlance keepers. I can turn them into being quite acceptable just by applying a certain approach to the processing. Sometimes excessively so, um, sometimes subtly so. And and talking about excess and subtly. We about these terms that I have introduced in the group that um, I think Carl and and Simon are again aware of. What shall I talk about first? mokus or ouch?
3: Maybe ouch. <laughs>
1: Let, let's talk about ouch, alright? So, um, Carl and I have got this little in-joke that if he put a picture that has got too many um, spectral highlights or balls or whatever people tend to call them, Uh, I I kind of say, ouch. And the reason I say that is not necessarily because they are there, but because they are competing with the subject matter. And I, I... Personally, if if I believe in anything, is that whatever we bring in, be it swirly bouquets, being beach balls, whatever you call them, um, flares, which is uh, I think Simon's speciality as well. Uh, I think they're fine, but in my view, only if they allow the main subject, something which was the reason why that picture was taken in the first place to, to take center stage and not to be confused by all that's going on elsewhere and and this is purely with aesthetics and aesthetics are something that uh i guess it either comes naturally or or you have to work at it, it can be done and i don't talk about you know the rule of three thirds and and any kind of uh, rule that, that people um, write tomes about. I'm, I'm talking naturally pleasing. That, that's what I mean by aesthetics, right? I know Carl uh, uh, is painting. Um, I have painted one painting in my entire life, and um, I shall not do so again, um, because I can't express myself in, in paint, the way I can express myself in photography, uh, but it is something that that I, I think is important because while I can't paint, I love painting and and in any shape or form, but not because it's been painted by X or because it is trendy or or it is um, now what what you know people talk about today. No, either it has something to which I emotionally react, and I don't mind admitting that I have uh, had a few occasions in my life when I actually was tearful in front of uh, paintings. Now, photography, perhaps it's not working to to, to such heights of of emotion for me, uh, but maybe because I... I'm doing it myself rather than and being purely a um, recipient of, of other people's emotions, if that makes any sense at all. Now, schmokus, it's a terminology that I would have loved to have invented, but the truth is that I didn't. Somebody else had. Somewhere I came across, um, it was called, I think, Nkuntas. Uh, Projection with with uh, hocus pocus, smoke, something like that. But I, I have um, taken it to heart because for me, it represents the possibility of producing an image where you can achieve the aesthetics that I was referring to, but you don't necessarily have anything in focus or. Only a tiny, tiny little proportion of the frame is in focus, and the rest is blurred. Now, we can call that abstract, we can call it whatever we like to call it, but I think this business of um, which kind of alludes to out of focus, it, it's a term that that sits um, very comfortably with me.
3: I want to thank you for the um beautiful ouch photo that you sent to my Facebook page this weekend in preparation for the podcast. <laughs> Giza sent me a photo that's entirely bokeh balls, <laughs> but it's actually quite a pleasing photo.
1: Well, I, I hope that, that you, you saw the intention in it because I wasn't in any way, um, how can I put it, rubbing your nose in it. To be <laughs> to uh, on the contrary, I wanted to say that, look, it can be done. Yep. It, it's okay to do it, but it is to serve a purpose. And and not just because the lens can deliver it.
3: Yeah, it was very well done. It's a good picture. Thank
1: you.
0: I, th- I think that's one of the, the things about our, our group, though. Um, many, many photographs are shared and taken uh, because of the because of the characteristics of a lens, so that many many photographs have uh, almost a gratuitous amount of bokeh, or uh, as you've pointed out, I like to introduce flare um, if ever I get get the chance to to do so, um, and certainly when if I'm in a situation where I find that there's a there's an interesting flare shot uh, to be had. Um, I'll actually make the shot more about the flare than whatever else is in there so it's 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 turning the the notion on its head so really the the flare is the photo and it just needs to be in everything else sets the flare off if that makes sense is is that is that allowable geyser? Uh,
1: <laughs> purely look first of all everything is allowable there are no, no rules but yes uh, I I think the kind of naval gazing approach of which I have also been guilty in the past, of, of simply using a variety of lenses uh, on the same insipid subject in order to prove that one may or may not be ever so slightly doing this, that and the other, and then because of all the um, totally out of our control parameters that are involved in in our monitors, in the the platform on which we are viewing it, on the angle of uh, laptop screens and so forth, it's kind of not conducive to good photography for good photography's sake. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that our group doesn't have uh, very good photographs. It doesn't mean that um, you know technical issues are not worth talking about. A lot of people um, are um, coming to us who perhaps are more experienced in order to seek guidance and and make use of the experience that um, we have accumulated. And and that's perfectly fine. And I, I'm I'm never shy of uh, of you know, giving my thoughts, um, even though they sometimes don't go necessarily the same way as, as other people's views. But that that that's fine. But certainly, um, I know that Carl is, I'm not sure if the to me, and Johnny and, and Simon, that you are members or are you looking at all to the minimalist group that I am also a uh, member of? but although by its very definition it is um limited to a minimalist view of photography i tell you i I am absolutely overwhelmed by the quality of some of the pictures that are there
3: yes that's a really good group and there's a minimalist corner group that has phenomenal photos also so i mean i i don't i've I'm not familiar with any flare shots that you've done where I thought the flare was overpowering the underlying photo. I think you've used it very effectively, and um, uh, and I I I'll admit though there have been times when I've gone out and I've probably done exactly what Giza described. I mean I have I was looking back through some flare shots just a minute ago and I I have some that are are um, just enhancing the photo a little bit a horse in a field and a little bit of flare coming out of the corner. But last night I did a shot. And I did it just for the flare. I was taking photos of field flowers. And I put the camera on F8 to capture the whole field after I did the close-up shots. And um, I noticed, wow, if I turned the camera just a little bit closer to the sun, there's this beautiful ray coming down across the image. And from that point on, I tried to get the flare just right. <laughs> but made sure the field was in focus. And um, that image may be one, that, uh, the type that he's talking about.
1: No, no. Actually, first of all, I have taken pictures, few, but I have taken pictures where I have exploited, if that's the word, the flare. But on the picture that you're talking about, Carl, do you know what was my immediate response? I, I didn't write it down, but that, this is what went through my head. Why didn't you wait for the light to come to where those photos that were prop sorry, the flowers that were properly in focus that were a little bit to the right to where the flare ended. Do you know what I'm talking
3: about? I know because there was a, there's a area of just a lawn there that is. Yeah, you, you not went a good just part of the
1: behind it. You went just behind it. Because if it would have hit what was really the subject, it would have been perfect. The flare wouldn't have mattered at all. I am not against flair if it serves a purpose. I mean, you know, we all have seen those occasionally wonderful shots taken in woods where suddenly there is this light. I mean, by the way, I, I very often take uh, pictures in what we call contre-jour, when, you know, the light is coming at you rather than being behind you. And, and those pictures can be very effective, particularly if... Uh, it's the actual natural lighting that creates the effect rather than an anomaly in the lens itself, if, if you know what I mean.
2: Yeah, Gaze, I, I, I know exactly what you mean, I, and I'm maybe um, uh, probably on the same page in some regard here, because uh, that's probably the, the least... Um, because least likely type of shot I, I, w- I would make personally and I have nothing against shots being made like that but um, I, I do think that it's it's funny how the interest in photographic flare I think which originally comes from film cameras and film photography as it's become a more of a digital pursuit it, it does become purely about the flare versus the flare being um, a compelling portion of the image if that makes sense um and again, I have nothing against it, but I, I do think that the flare looks it, it's a very particular uh pursuit, I think, um in the area we're at now where we have these classic lenses being used on digital cameras. Cause I do think it's really a a product of the digital domain, if that makes sense. And I think the flare looks to me looks really different sometimes when you see the uh the way it reflects off the sensor and inside the lens element, I, I don't always find that to be a particularly um, appealing image, if that's okay. I'm being a little bit judgmental, I guess. But um, but I, I, I guess I come from the same camp where the flare used to be something that gave the image some sort of additional depth or feeling versus the subject of the image. Because it let's be honest, even in the SLR is very hard to um, – uh, a film SLR is very difficult to see – how that final effect is going to look on the film because there is a translation between what you're viewing off the mirror and the film slr and what actually gets exposed on the film so it, w- it was always something that was not really you weren't able to really do flare for flare itself you know back i guess back in the day in the film days um it's to me it's a product of where we're at right now and not not good nor bad necessarily but it's a very modern approach i think as is really Um, the book of photography, especially with like 1.2 lenses, which I've done some of that myself, but you know, nobody really ever did that back when those lenses were, you know, originally um, introduced or where they were out there. I think people really, especially with SLR lenses had a 1.2 lens because it made the viewfinder brighter when it was dim, not for shooting at 1.2. You would, you would never really do that. So it it is interesting to me how some of this stuff um, is all about the, uh, the influence of older technology on on newer technology, right? We can make these things do things they weren't necessarily intended to do, which is inherently interesting. It's not always maybe um, uh, interesting in terms of the end result. It can be, and it can't be. It all depends on how it's being used.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It it's, Does it serve a purpose? To, to me, that that is really the ultimate quest that uh, why, why is something there? Sometimes only because it's interesting, sometimes because it's unusual. I mean, I find myself in two totally, almost contradictory modes of taking a picture. Sometimes I take a picture because I have an idea and I find a way of taking a picture of the idea. The other times, and sometimes it's sheer luck, I take a picture and then idea. From it. Uh, when I say idea, meaning uh, a point, sometimes a joke, sometimes a juxtaposition of, of things. Uh, but there has to be more than, than just pointing the camera. I mean, the other thing, of course, which it's worth mentioning, because Carl is doing a lot of street photography, and I used to do a lot of street photography, and some of my best friends who are perhaps. Um, more critical than others of my work, often point out that my pictures of the 1960s are much better than my pictures today. And I will not um, disagree with them. I, I, I think that kind of freshness, that perhaps uh, the energy of youth, call it what you will, is, is very difficult to to maintain at, at my stage in life. But nonetheless... Uh, The thing that that is also worrying is how the society has changed around us. Um, Again, I preface this with with a little anecdote. Uh, In those 18 months when I was back in Budapest, um, uh, in order to maintain the still fairly um, modest english knowledge that i had i went to a kind of club of like-minded people who were simply doing english conversation in order to either learn or or to maintain what they knew and um, because i was um, an unusual character in the sense that at my age not many people have visited the west i was asked to give a little speech or, or presentation, if you like, as to my experiences in London, which I did, after which, as usual, you said, well, any questions, etc., etc. So the question came, how do you compare London and, and Budapest? And I made the following comparison. I said, well, look, in uh, Budapest or Hungary, let's say at the time, if um, I... I'm taking, let's say, a tramway, which is a popular way of going about there, and somebody steps on my foot, it would scream at me, saying, don't I know where to keep my feet out of the way? Whilst in London, if I step on someone's toes on the underground, they would have probably said, sorry. Now, the sad thing is that this is no longer the case. This is no longer the case because I have become extremely mindful as to what I'm willing to point a camera at because I witnessed a couple of instances where uh, a photographer, and I believe he was genuinely a photographer, has uh, simply snapped a toddler in a, in a pushchair and the mother called out a policeman and and created the biggest fuss you you ever have. Because now, if if you point your camera at somebody who is uh, not an adult, you immediately are uh, thought of as perhaps being a paedophile. Or, if it's an adult, then you are basically trespassing their personal space. And in fact, this is not, not a local issue because I know that in France, now you can't publish any photograph that has got recognizable people on it unless you have their permission to do so. And this makes it very, very difficult to do the type of candid photography that I used to do all those decades ago.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I really, uh, Giza, I really agree with that. I, I think about this a lot because even, you know, I even did this kind of photography back in the eighties in, you know, Chicago eighties, nineties, primarily eighties when I was just starting out and I, I, you really can't do it anymore. And I honestly, I gotta be honest. I, I don't have a problem with that. I think the era that we're in right now, I think it's completely effing obnoxious to stick a camera in someone's face without their consent to some regard. Um, so i I think the whole era of part of the reason people are so fascinated by the whole Vivian Meyer kind of stuff is that it was a different era. You could it, it, there was a people were aware of photography, but it didn't have uh, the same sort of um thing it has now where everything is plastered everywhere all the time. um so i I think people are naturally more protective of their personal space, which i'm honestly okay with (laughs) um the other the other thing i i just can really relate to that you mentioned is not uh, being selective about what to take pictures of um and i think maybe part of the reason i still enjoy film photography more is it i i don't automatically snap everything i might snap if i had unlimited resources which means it's digital you don't ever think about how many exposures are left on the roll or how much the film's going to cost etc um and I just want to mention one thing to get into the discussion here, because I think we're wrapping up soon. But um, there's a link that I'll include uh, in the group notes that, that I'll send to Simon, where it's it's an article from Vox this week, which we had a conversation about in our darkroom chat room, which is kind of the side chat that uh, you know moderators have for the photography with classic lenses group. And it and it, and the title is "What Smartphone Photography Is Doing to Our Memories." And I won't go into it explaining the whole article right now but we will share it um and i think it would be fantastic to have a conversation about that outside of the podcast you know with our with our listeners and and other folks so just want to get that get that mention in there and uh something for us to maybe follow up on after the podcast
0: right well um I think we're going to have to draw this, uh, this this podcast to an end. It's one of those conversations where I think there's, there's probably about another two hours to go. Um, and I think we're already on the longest ever podcast that we've done as well. So uh, um, firstly... Uh, Actually, one one thing I just I feel like I've just got to go back and say uh, I still feel your loss for not having film in your camera when you're at the uh, the Vietnam <laughs> riots at uh, Grosvenor Square back in the sixties. That's uh, that's that's just <laughs> that's just shocking news. And uh, the good the good news was your description was so good. I think I already, I know what you actually saw. So I I've got those photographs in my head. So thank thank you for that, uh, Gazer.
1: Well, actually, I have some pictures taken at similar riots or um demonstrations
0: well if you could if you could share those in our uh, group photography with classic lenses on facebook that'll be i'm sure that'll be really appreciated um oh. so so now um again i just wish to say thank you again gazer for um, illuminating us there and um, and putting up with our questions as well Um, I really appreciate that and to wrap things up now uh, Johnny uh, perhaps you can tell us how people can follow you and uh, get in touch with you
2: Uh, sure Uh, I am in the uh, most days in the photography with Classic Lenses Facebook group interacting there Um, you can find my uh, my work ongoing uh, compilation of my work on Instagram where where I am at system photography on Instagram Uh, and I am at the camera sales uh, counter most days at Central Camera Company in
3: Chicago and you co? okay I guess the main places are Facebook photography with classic lenses page Um, I keep my Flickr page up to date um, at least weekly and there I'm just um, Carl Havens with capital K and capital H um, I'm still trying to understand why um, I'm using Instagram, but I am posting pictures there <laughs> periodically. And, uh, well, no, you can't post from your computer, so you have to have them go to. Yes, your you, phone. Can. yes and, you can. Yes, you can. Hey, well I'll have to, you can teach me you
2: can, <laughs> you can. yes you okay.
3: can <laughs> 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 and then i've been taking them from my phone to Flickr, and then their or instagram and then they're kind of crappy pictures but anyway uh, um in, on instagram it's it's carl havens with uh, lowercase and then an underscore in between
0: uh gaze of uh, how might people uh, take a look at what you're up to
1: well, perhaps um, Flickr is the one that is more interesting because it's going back a lot further than on Facebook. I shall um, give you, I mean, you can find me as and Singer, but I'll give you a link later on. That, that's brilliant. And
0: I can be found in a few places. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic, um, on Flickr as Simon Forster. You can find my eBay shop for doing a seller search for It's Fozzy. That's I T S F I T S F O Z Z Y. And as you heard earlier, I've got a remarkably successful website um, called www.simonforsterphotographic.co.uk. And lastly, you can find us all on the Vito- on the Facebook group, Photography with Classic Lenses. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. and It'd be great if you could catch up with us next week. Goodbye. I learned a few tricks from the uh, podcast last week about taking notes of uh, when the podcast actually, the st- time it starts, and it's 21 minutes and 39 into my recording so far, and, um, and take notes of uh, areas that, uh, where things go wrong, <laughs> you can just make a note of the time and just skip to that, So, uh, or where Johnny swears or anything like that. Whoa whoa,
1: whoa, 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 what, what? Swearing not to oh. allowed?
0: No swearing. Yes, ge- uh, Geyser, this is, You're going to swear at me for if, if I keep putting my Um Can uh, I yeah. swear Hungarian? Hungary?
1: Yeah. <laughs> please, please,
0: please don't. <laughs>